0: It was definitely a challenging week. You know, we had been keeping in touch with the Commissioner of Natural and Cultural Resources down there and the governor's office pretty aggressively between March 13th and 18th, and you could kind of see things happening the 13th, the 14th, the 15th, and you could kind of see the way this was going. And eventually the public health situation and the difficulty of maintaining proper social distancing, because that was new, uh, kind of made the decision to shut down the only real option. Uh, You know, everybody else had pretty much dropped their tools and run. Uh, Really, it kind of came to a head on the 18th when we had lines, they were well spread out, but there was a lot of stuff posted that went viral that made it look uh, a lot tighter than it actually was. So at that point, the governor had contacted each of the four ski areas and said, you know, uh, thank you for your solidarity, but it's time to hang up the spurs, so to speak.
1: Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester, going into New Hampshire today. Before we do that, a reminder to please subscribe to the free storm skiing newsletter at skiing.substack.com. And if you're listening on iTunes and you like the pod, drop me a review. The Storm Skiing Podcast is brought to you in part by Mountain Gazette. Founded in 1966, Mountain Gazette is a biannual, large format print title celebrating mountain culture. Head over to MountainGazette.com and enter code GOHIRE10, all one word. 10% off subscription. Use code EASTCOAST, one word, 10% off everything else, including vintage magazine covers, which make great art for your home office or living room. Mountain Gazette returns in November in print form for the first time in eight years. These issues will sell out. Grab your subscription today over at mountaingazette.com. Mountain Gazette. When in doubt, go higher. Episode 25, John DeVivo, General Manager of Cannon Mountain, New Hampshire. How do you sort out New Hampshire skiing? It's tough. It's not like Maine, where you have Sugarloaf and Sunday River and pretty soon Saddleback and then everyone else. And it's not like Vermont, where you have your clear big dogs and Jay and Stowe and Sugarbush and Killington. New Hampshire's different. You have a ton of really nice sized ski areas, but no real giants. From a distance, it's hard to sort them out. Well, let me help you out. If you like to get after it, Bumps, glades, wild stuff. Cannon is where it's at in New Hampshire. The place is incredible, big and steep and gnarly, with the front five, DJ's tramline, and tons of glades. It is a true skier's mountain. It has a deep history too. Started out as a CCC project in the 1930s, and it's been in operation ever since. It has a tram, one of just two at Northeast ski areas. And the current Cannon is actually two ski areas stitched together as the formerly abandoned Mittersill ski area has become a vital part of the resort over the past decade. It is a big, interesting, important mountain, and the guy in charge of it all is going to talk to us all about it today. Let's go. My guest today is the general manager of Cannon Mountain, the only ski area run by the state of New Hampshire. With 97 trails and glades on a 2,180 foot vertical drop, Cannon is one of the largest ski areas in the state, and the highest, with a summit of 4,080 feet. The site of the first aerial tramway in North America, Cannon is one of the oldest ski areas in the Northeast, in continuous operation since 1938. John DeVivo is my guest. John, thank you so much for your time today.
0: Well, thanks for having me, Stuart.
1: So it's been a really long off-season, John. How have you been holding up? Have you and your family stayed safe and healthy?
0: Yeah, uh, we live actually over in uh, Oxford County in Maine, And I'm happy to say that to date, Oxford County is, uh, I think at last check, my kids told me we were 99.99745% COVID-free over there.
1: That is where you want to be. We've been following (laughs) guidelines and staying healthy. Excellent. Glad to hear that. Well, last season ended kind of abruptly for everyone. Most large ski areas in the Northeast closed down the weekend of March 14th to 15th. Cannon held out until Wednesday, March 18th, along with Waterville Valley, Gunstock, and Bretton Woods, also all largest mountains in New Hampshire. Take us into your decision to stay open, John, after the majority of other ski areas in the region is shut down.
0: Yeah, it was uh, it was definitely a challenging week. You know, we had been keeping in touch with uh, the Commissioner of Natural and Cultural Resources down there and the governor's office pretty aggressively between March 13th and 18th. And you could kind of see things happening the 13th, the 14th, the 15th, and, and you could, you could kind of see the way this was going. And eventually the public health situation and the difficulty of maintaining proper social distancing, because that was new, uh, kind of made the decision to shut down the, the only real option. Uh, you know, everybody else had pretty much dropped their tools and run. Uh, really it kind of came to a head on the 18th when uh, we had lines. They were well spread out, but there was a lot of stuff posted that went viral that made it look uh, a lot tighter than it actually was. And uh, Mm -hmm. and so at that point, the governor had contacted each of the four ski areas and said, you know, uh, thank you for your solidarity, but
1: it's time to hang up the spurs, so to speak. Yeah, there were a lot of very strong opinions on both sides, both to stay open and to shut down.
0: Yeah, the people (laughs) who were skiing here really had no problem with it. It was the rest of the world. You know, the other 90 (laughs) percent, 97 percent of Americans that don't ski and
1: ride. It, did that become a distraction, John, or were you able to just focus on running the ski area, or, or did the did the social media and the media attention just become too much to the point where it was a distraction from running the ski area?
0: Uh, you know the the difficulty wasn't in running the area itself. Uh, realistically, we were meeting every afternoon and every in, and actually into the early evening every day to figure out you know what is tomorrow's plan. How much more can you trim? What's the day after that plan? You know how much more can you realistically force people? to keep their distance, because, again, that was new. Uh, we hadn't seen that mm-hmm. before. I think we did a great job with it, but eventually, you know, you can you can Photoshop or you can make anything look a little bit different than it was, and uh, when stuff went viral, it gave the appearance that we really didn't care, and that was the opposite of what was happening.
1: Right, and I think everyone has learned quite a bit. In the intervening months including the difference between how it spreads indoors and outdoors also everyone is accustomed to wearing face masks now there's there's a lot of differences between now and then curious as as these other big mountains shut down did that cause a problem for you did people start to flood into cannon
0: (laughs) yeah i would say that during those last four to five days we had people showing up from all over the country really Uh, and frankly you know i i had spent 30 years or so wanting my ski area to be that popular, and then all of a sudden it's the last thing that you want. I mean, you, you could you could <laughs> look around the parking lot and see, literally, we had plates from Utah, we had plates from California, Nevada, uh, every state within the New England region, all up and down the East Coast. We had Ohio, we had Michigan, you know, you name it. And uh, it was exhilarating but terrifying at the same time.
1: It was a scary time. What finally drove your decision to shut down?
0: Uh, <laughs> well, most bluntly, it was the call from the governor's office. Uh, okay. you know, realistically, it was the fact that, you know, it, half of it was, of course, public safety and the fact that when nobody really quite knew what we were dealing with yet. Um, but, you know, again, public perception is very important to us, and we don't want to be seen as uh, as an entity that's driving any lack of public safety. Um, you know, it was a little weird to shut the doors on March 18th and then have people skiing and skinning here until mid to late May, but, you know, it is what it is. We All we could do was put out the message that uh, we didn't think it was super safe, and if you were going to travel up here and use the property because we are a state park, please do so safely and don't tax the local medical community.
1: Did you have any input into the governor's decision? Uh, I'm going to say no on that one. Yeah, I, I did see some some pretty good videos uh, on social media of Canon. I, I want to say into May. I, I don't remember if this is exactly right, but it seems to me like you had a little bit of fresh snow in May and someone posted they skinned up and just took an, an amazing run down.
0: We actually had more snow probably between the middle of March and the end of May than we had had between the end of November and up into uh, the middle of March. You know, we were joking around that whoever was around on the weekends was essentially watching the Southern New England A Championships every
1: Saturday.
2: <laughs>
1: yeah, I had uh, Carl Strand, GM and Sugarloaf on a week or two ago, and, and he said their their snowpack was just unbelievable. In the late season, the snow they got, he thinks they could have gone into mid-May. Yep, yep. So it's been a long summer. You've had a lot of time to think this over, uh, a lot of time to talk to other folks, see what they're doing, a lot of time to see how are amusement parks, how are these other things handling this. Uh, how is skiing at Cannon going to look different for the 2020 to 21 ski season than it has in past years? Well,
0: you know, our uh, for the most part, Cannon itself will still be Cannon. Uh, you're going to have scenery. You're going to have amazing views. You're going to have great people up here, you know, in capacities will be cut by at least a third to a half. Our coach-student ratios will change dramatically. Ski school, ticketing, rentals, you know, those limited commodities will all go to an online-only, advanced-only sales model. Lodges will be set up at 50% capacity at most, uh, and literally just chairs and tables only. No lockers, no shelves, no pegs, no cubbies, no hangers, literally nothing but tables and chairs really to enforce that capacity. And the reason for essentially gutting these buildings is so that you have enough room to host at 50 percent capacity. Uh, restaurants and pubs, of course, will follow the state's food and beverage guidance, and that seems to change daily and weekly sometimes, so our guys will continue to make adjustments there. Uh, but, you know, from an outside perspective, Canon is Canon. We're going to make snow. We're going to patrol. We're going to teach kids how to ski. We're going to sell beer, you know, and, and realistically, we want to add some measure of normalcy in what's going to be a crazy winter.
1: And how about on-mountain capacity? Are you going to be selling walk-up lift tickets? Are you going to have capacity limits on the mountains? Um, are, are people going to be encouraged or required to buy tickets in advance? What are you thinking there for capacity on the mountains? As far as tickets go,
0: uh, it'll be online only, advanced sales only. Uh, if you happen to to roll in here on a day where there's ticket capacity and you can get on Wi-Fi in the parking lot, as people have been doing all summer, then go ahead and snatch that ticket up. Uh, so we'll basically take a, you know, our our formula it's still a bit vague right now as we zero in and look at all of last year's numbers. But, you know, we would take uh, a typical robust Saturday crowd of, say, 4,500. We'll cut that by 25%. Then we'll account for passholder usage at 40 to 50%. We'll figure out, you know, is today a racing and training day? Is today an adaptive program day? What else have we got going on today? And then we'll come up with a, a, a number of saleable tickets, whether it's a 1,000 or 1,500 or what have you. You know, we're not concerned about the people outside when it comes to space. It's the indoor capacities, as I'm sure you've been hearing.
1: Mm-hmm. And so you will have a limit on the number of day tickets that you'll sell?
0: Yeah. You know, we are we actually, uh, we've got a very robust guidance document that we've drafted and have been sitting on for quite a while. We also worked through Ski New Hampshire, NSAA, et cetera, the Governor's Opening Task Force and whatnot. So that was just released uh, from a state perspective last week. We're blowing the dust off of our document. We'll be putting that out uh, on every media that we have available to us probably this week, uh, which offers a lot more details. You know, the phone's been ringing, and we've been asking folks to be a little bit patient as we wait for the state guidance to come out, do a little squeaking. I mean, we had a direct line uh, of involvement with that, so we know what's coming down the pike. And then every ski area in New Hampshire will kind of tweak that to their own operation. Um, So we'll be putting that out probably this week, I would say.
1: So part of those state of New Hampshire guidelines, the the line everyone keeps calling out is, if if someone shows up with a runny nose, they'll be asked to leave. Uh, do you, do you think that's enforceable? Uh, I think it's pretty
0: easy uh, to go and talk to somebody for 12 seconds and and not have a runny nose, if you know what I mean.
2: <laughs> right. <laughs> you know,
0: and, I'm just and what do you leave that one there? You know, we're looking for general and overall health. You know, the idea that uh, I, I originally saw. Every single skier, you know, walking up to the window must be asked the six questions and and whatnot, and uh, I think what you're going to end up seeing is that there's information out there for everyone to see and absorb, and, you know, people have to be realistic about their own health and the the health and safety of everyone around them. Um, I'm trying to fathom asking, you know, 3,500 people the same six questions and getting them on the chairlift by noon. I'm not sure that's possible. But people do need to be responsible and take some responsibility.
1: I, I think one of the things that skiers are concerned about is because all tickets will be sold online in advance. What happens if they're sick? Will they get a credit? Yeah, they'll or have credit. Yeah, just... they'll have credit and refund options.
0: Of course, um, you know they will have to go ahead and rebook, and there is you know there's a certain amount of hassle to that, and we. We anticipate that, and we appreciate that, and, you know, we're all going to kind of go through this learning curve together with that stuff. I don't get the sense that you're literally going to have every Saturday booked from, you know, November 29th all the way through, uh, you know, April 13th or 14th or whatever it happens to be. There's going to be some time. You know, we're all going to learn about this stuff as we go.
1: Yeah, and I'd imagine it'll change quite a bit. Even Vail, when they put out the reservation system, they're like, look, we're starting big. just." Because we want to cover everything, but this could go away, right?
0: Well, and I think uh, for the most part here in New Hampshire, most areas are planning on starting a bit smaller in terms of ticket sales and whatnot. I mean, we would here at Cannon, we would prefer to grow into a system rather than come out guns blazing and have way too many people here on the first couple of weekends. You know, that's not going to work for anybody, and it's certainly not going to work for us, and it's going to shed a poor light on New Hampshire skiing. So.
1: We'd we'd rather have a model that we can grow into comfortably instead of hitting the brakes. Right. Well, it sounds like you've been hard at work in that all summer. Uh, I think the biggest operational question that a lot of folks will have, at least your regular skiers, is will the tram run? Uh, Jay Peak has said that they will run theirs uh, at limited capacity. They have not yet determined what limited capacity means. Uh, How are you approaching the operation of the tram, John?
0: Well, right now... Uh, You know, we haven't run the tram since the middle of March. Uh, That's been a big revenue hit, and we can talk about that in a little bit. You know, right now the tram is probably, I would say, unlikely to operate during the first half of the ski season, but everything's being looked at daily, weekly, monthly. I mean, that could change pretty rapidly if there's a sudden, you know, downturn in this public health uh, issue or whatnot. But, I mean, let's face it, that's not a very big space. And I've got to be comfortable in asking my guys. I look there over at Jimbo Snyder and say, look, every 15 to 18 minutes, I want you to travel with a whole bunch of people that you don't know very well, risk exposure inside a small room that has two windows. I mean, you can't run with the doors open. Uh, you know, right now that's not an easy call for me to make. So we're we're on hold for sure at this point. Uh, everybody's going to be masked, and I, I understand all that. And, you know, we're looking at public transit guidance. We're looking at uh, – Obviously, gondola guidance and and that kind of thing. And, you know, we we may morph into that. Uh, It could be that we open it up a little earlier, but it's weekends only. You know, it's going to be an operational decision. But for right now, the tram is definitively on hold.
1: I think a big factor here, John, and and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, I I think one thing you have going for you is you do have redundancy to the top. Right? You can take body to Cannonball as long as those lifts are working, people can still get there. They can ski that terrain. It might take them a little longer to get there, and there might be a little bit more of a weight on the lines, but you're not cutting off terrain here. You know, I mean, the tram is an iconic fixture here
0: at Cannon, and really throughout New England skiing. Uh, it's probably our most well-known asset uh, from a general perspective. But, again, we do have other ways of reaching the top. We do have 10 other aerial lifts, and we're going to get you there one way or the other. You know, it's... Uh, it's funny, it's it's kind of ironic that you're really only transporting 420 to 450 people per hour to the summit, mm-hmm. whereas the cannonball quad moves about 1,400 people. So if you lose the cannonball quad, you're feeling it at the tram. If you lose the tram, everything else just absorbs that between Zoomer and Peabody and uh, the cannonball quad.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's like you said, it's just this iconic thing. It's the first thing you think of when you think of cannon is the tram. So it, it's, it's, a, it's a big optics thing for you. Yep. Uh, any special plans for limiting capacity on your other chairlifts?
0: No, right now we're uh, we're kind of hung up on that catchphrase: "Arrive together and ride together." You know, we mm-hmm. like that. We believe in that. Um, it's it's going to be awfully difficult to police that and try to figure out. You know, who's riding with whom. Uh, uh, my biggest concern is if I start turning triples into singles or doubles into singles and quads into doubles and whatnot. Is your you're going to have crowds spread out across your entire base area, especially with our layout. And, uh, you know, frankly, I, I don't like the idea of folks coming down with maybe a lack of control and, uh, you know, the line becomes bowling pins. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I would I'd rather keep things fairly well controlled. Everybody's wearing a mask. Everybody's breathing outdoor fresh air. And uh, we'll see how it goes. I, I do have the guys over in lift operations thinking pretty aggressively about some different maze configurations and whatnot. Uh, but right mm-hmm. now we don't have any plans to limit capacity on a per-chair basis.
1: Do you think this is a year where you might want to try to get mitter open a little bit earlier just to spread people out more?
0: Yeah, we've talked about that. You know, what will our snowmaking plan be? I mean, realistically, at this point, uh, we'll talk a little bit about uh, the new Mitter-Syl Performance Center that's being built, and that will change things in the future for sure. Uh, but, you know, typically we try to get to the top of Peabody Quad, you know, that gives you the main two-thirds of uh, of Cannon. We try to get over to uh, to the Zoomer side to spread folks out over there, try to get some folks coming down through Eagle Cliff. We try to get over to Tuckerbrook as quickly as we can. Um, and this year, you know, we have we can't change the weather, so we're trying to move as quickly as we can, and we've actually been trying to get the Midersil side open by the third weekend that we're open. The last three years, I mm-hmm. think we've barely missed that. And so we've popped it on the fourth weekend we're open. This year, if the weather holds, we're going to try and shoot for that third weekend. So yeah, everybody's got a little more elbow room and we can spread people out.
1: Nice. So you can expect some changes when when you show up there, but I think that's true for all ski areas in the country and, and probably in the world this year. Uh, outside of COVID, anything new that you want to talk about at Cannon this winter? Well, yeah, I mean,
0: you know, again, outside of COVID-related changes, Cannon will still be Cannon. Like I say, it's a great big family ski area that just happens to have some seriously kick-ass terrain. Um, the biggest change is that you'll see a massive hole in the ground that hopefully we're filling up over on the Mittersill side. Franconia Ski Club did break ground on the Mittersill Performance Center three, four weeks ago. Foundation is done. Completion is expected in March or April. Uh, that's a ninety. Uh, sorry, not ninety-nine hundred. It's a nine-thousand-square-foot public access training center. Uh, or, you know, some would call it a mini-lodge over there. Uh, it's really going to open things up. It's going to allow us to host uh, bigger and better competitions over there. It's going to allow us to host the general public over there if they need uh, their restroom break or whatnot. You know, it's not going to be a food and beverage type of opportunity, but if you're going to warm up, you want to use restrooms uh, outside of what we have there now. We have two warming huts, and we've got a, a dual-vault pit toilet building over there, you know, a sill from a terrain area perspective, has really launched into the future, but the base has been sorely lagging as we've kind of figured out what is that going to look like, and I know that you want to talk about that in a little bit.
1: Yeah, what does the timeline on that project look like, John?
0: Uh, Right now they're talking about April completion. So if that bumps up to March, that would be great. It would give them a way to to get in there and kind of get their feet wet over there, but more realistically, probably April.
1: Oh, great. So you'd be able to park over there, pick up your lift ticket,
0: get right on the double, and just get right to it. We've actually been talking pretty extensively with the club, probably toward next year uh as to a way we can hook into wi fi over there. It's tough with the state versus non state systems um so we're gonna have to figure out a way to do probably some online ticketing over there or some pickup over there, whether that's in the new building or if it's in one of the existing warming huts
1: yeah let's let's get into mid or so a little more because that, that's a really interesting part of canon and when you took the job in two thousand seven, the negotiations to take over that land where Mittersill sits, we're still ongoing. So for those who are not familiar, Mitersil is, is an abandoned, was an abandoned former ski area right next door to Cannon. Um, you managed to successfully integrate that section into the greater mountain, which drastically increased the size of Cannon. Uh, but take us back to 2007, John, what needed to happen to make Mittersill part of Cannon?
0: Yeah, I mean, the Mitersil reclamation in general was still just a dream in 2007. And, and you know, when I came in for the interview process, uh, I went through Probably four rounds with George Bald, who was uh, the commissioner of what we used to call DRED, Department of Natural uh, – sorry, Department of Resources and Economic Development. Um, and George said, you know, we've got a plan for Mittersil, sort of a reclamation and a rebuild, but uh, it's going to take some teamwork. Uh, but really four people made that land exchange happen. So what happened was we took over uh, the top third of the Mittersil terrain area, which was owned by the feds, White Mountain National Forest, uh, and in an exchange – We actually gave up, as an entity, we gave up Sentinel Mountain State Forest down in Piermont. So it was 244 acres for them, including a small part of the Appalachian Trail, and it was a 100-acre parcel at the top of Middersil for us. No money, just land, worked out beautifully, Uh, signed on March 23, 2009, right there in uh, Governor Lynch's office, and it was beautiful. But realistically, it was George Bald and Tom Wagner, who was the White Mountain National Forest Manager. Uh, and then Bill Carpenter from New Hampshire Forest and Lands, and Susan Matheson from White Mountain National Forest, who really willed that land swap to happen. Those two probably worked at least 30 of their 40 hours a week for, for the better part of a year and a half, two years, uh, before we made that happen. And it took a whole lot of promising on our end to really treat that as a natural area and kind of let it breathe for the first
1: five years as we got into it. So Midasell became part of Canon. For the 2009 to 10 season so if you signed that in spring of 2009 you moved fairly quickly to make that happen by that season
0: yeah we did i mean it had had basically spent 25 years as what we were calling an all-natural ski area that was essentially deemed off limits Um, you know the lower two-thirds was state property uh, but you had to cross federal land to get to it so it was very tongue-in-cheek for a long long time as people would uh, you know park another vehicle over there hike up over the top and ski that stuff uh, you know, and it was interesting, as we started talking about some development over there, we took a lot of heat from the naturalists and the purists and whatnot, and you know, I guess they had kind of forgotten that the place had run for several decades as a fully-blown ski area nice. with lifts and terrain and some snowmaking and the whole nine yards. Uh, but we took ownership in '09. We spent the next season running weekend shuttles from the base. We funded and built the lift for opening in 2011, uh, we, and that was a fantastic snow year, 2011. We had almost 300 inches. Uh, And it ran for 71 days as a natural snow, uh, lift, and terrain area. We had always said we would hold off for four to five years on development over there. Uh, But, of course, it made sense to partner with Franconia Ski Club on the terrain, the snowmaking, the lift project from 2012 to 16 because it gave the general public a fantastic improvement at really no extra cost to them whatsoever. You know, uh, like I say, we were never going to leave that area undeveloped forever. That would be like finding a diamond and never polishing it. You know, So now it's 50% natural, 50% developed, two new lifts, two new world class racing slopes, the double is fantastic skiing slopes. I mean, it's really the best of both worlds.
1: So the racing slope that's there now, did that replace something that was on the main part of Cannon Mountain before? Uh, well, yes and no. I mean, it, it,
0: Barron's Run, uh, which is a true 5,000 footer, that is rated and homologated for up to a fifth level Super G. At this point, in fact, we hosted the National Junior Super G Championships uh, the winter before last. We've hosted the uh, Eastern High School Championships over there. We hosted the NCAAs over there uh, back in 2017. And realistically, on the Cannon side, it was a combination of of several different trails. You know, on Gary's over on the front, we used to host uh, some high-quality slalom events. But then for Giant Slalom, it was always on, uh, you know, you had to come on uh, Lower Ravine and down through Turnpike. And once you get over to Mitersil and and realize what a true epic racing slope was, uh, that really raised some eyebrows.
1: And and how was the reaction to that? How strong was the Keep Sill Natural faction compared to the, hey, let's build something really special here faction?
0: Well, back around 2015, 16, I sort of changed my take on it. And and we kind of went out with uh, a new twist and said, look, let's think about this as you know, you being the 15-year-old kid, that 15-year-old race kid. And so what are you really getting? So your parents and, and, and everybody else who's raising money for these particular projects, they're going out and doing all the work. They're raising the money. They're spending everything, and then they're gifting it to the state of New Hampshire. And every time Franconia Ski Club does that, that's the catch. They have to then gift it to the state of New Hampshire. Now, we own it. We maintain it. We've got all that cost associated with it. However, it's a dramatic improvement every time. For the general skiing perspective. And so back then, when the Mittersill Reclamation Project really kicked in, we said, all right, so Charlie, the 15-year-old, he's going to get access to Barron's Run, uh, probably our greatest run here at Cannon, about 10% of the time. And you're going to get it 90% of the time with no extra cost. And then Charlie's going to have half of the day spent on the training slope or the entire day spent on half the training slope, and you're going to get the rest of it. And then you're going to get all of the other three or 4 snowmade trails over there and all of the rest of Midtersil and a double chair and a T-bar at no extra cost to you. And that really changed people's perspective and said, well, this is not so much a racing takeover. It is literally just a safety measure of moving all of their racing and training over there and opening up the masses or opening up cannon for the masses. Uh, so realistically, a lot of that complaining went away as soon as we started developing this stuff, and people understood what we were doing.
1: So it sounds like people get it. Do you think you're done with trail development on Mittersill, or are there more changes in the future?
0: No, I, I mean Mittersill is rolling pretty well right now. We may open up and thin up some uh, some gladed areas over there, just as we may over here on the Cannon side. But you know, realistically, the Cannon footprint is fairly well established at this point.
1: And do you think the double chair is still working for Midracell, or do you think it will outgrow it at one point?
0: No, I really don't. You know, we had some concerns in the early going, but realistically, you know, you're never seeing more than, and this is outside the race community being over there, you're probably never seeing more than 10 or 15 percent of your population over there. Now, we'll see what happens when the uh, the performance center is built. Um, but again, realistically, even at 20, 25 percent of your overall capacity, that area does swallow up people pretty well because it's half natural and half man-made over there.
1: So you keep mentioning the Franconia Ski Club. Can you talk a little bit about what that club is and Canon's relationship to it?
0: Yeah, I mean, Franconia Ski Club, uh, they started in 1933. They're Canon's oldest partner and most trusted partner. They helped found the ski area, essentially. Um, you know, this may truly be the best public, private, or, or ski club, ski area partnership in the East, in my opinion. Um, you know, I, the first thing I did in 2007 uh, was pulled their program director onto our management team, uh, and it made a great partnership even stronger. You know, we're always committed to improving their opportunities, and on the flip side, they're always committed to making improvements to Canon. And again, not just for the club, but for the betterment of everybody. Uh, between the Cannon Side and the Mittersill Side, the club has raised and spent well over eight million dollars in the last couple of decades on improvements at the ski area at large. Uh, you know, meanwhile, they just so happen to dominate junior racing throughout the state.
1: How important is that partnership for you as a state-run ski area that has a a budget that the state gives you? Right, like you're not Stratton, who has Altera that you can go ask for an extra five million dollars. So this club has really, from the way you've described it. Is really the reason why Midasill exists in its present form. How how important is that partnership to you and and the continued evolution and growth of Canada Mountain?
0: Yeah, you know, on the Midasill side, uh, they've been huge. Of course, we, being the state, we spent the first three and a half million to do the general clearing over at Mitter-Syl, uh pull the old double chair out, pull the old T-bar out, put the new double chair in, and uh, you know, we had joked at the time, it's it's the most expensive double chair. Uh, in the history of mankind, but people forgot that a lot of that was re-engineering, pulling the old one out, uh, doing demolition, prepping, and and whatnot. So it wasn't literally just the lift itself. Um, But if you look back a ways, you know, the the club was heavily involved in snowmaking uh, over on the front five and through the Banshees, uh, which expanded that for everybody's general use. Uh, and then from a midasil perspective, again, we spent the first three, three and a half million over there. They came in with a, a just over a four million dollar snowmaking, terrain, and lift project uh, over there with the T-bar. Uh, again, two primary race routes and three other routes that we make snow on. Um, the terrain project itself, all of the snowmaking over there, uh, which also included a second dam over at uh, Echo Lake, which more easily allowed us to control water flow over there and keep water flowing downstream to protect the fishery down there um and also included in the early days when we needed more air uh it also included 9000 uh, cubic feet per minute compressor as part of that project you know so there's that's 4 to 5 million that they had invested and now we're talking about uh, about another 2.8 million maybe 3 million dollars on the Midsole performance center you know so their commitment to Canon I believe is unparalleled uh, at least anywhere here in the east and the passion that they have is, is the same passion that we have. We all want Canon to be better.
1: I want to go back to that double chair for a moment and what you said about it being the most expensive double chair ever. Can you talk a little bit more about what were the engineering challenges that you faced? Because there there was an existing lift there, as you said, and you, and you tore it out. What, was, what were some of the complexities in that project uh, that made it such an expensive thing to bring online?
0: Well, like I say, I think uh, the original demolition and removal uh, played a big part. You know, there was some re-engineering and, and some re-contouring with stuff. Uh, it wasn't super extensive. Um, you know, the the first part of the project was taking a look and seeing if any of that stuff could be reused, and, and we found out pretty quickly uh, that it couldn't. But I remember on my first day here back in 2007 climbing a couple towers and spinning those shiv wheels, and they spun like they had just come off the factory floor and hadn't been used in some 25 years or so. Um, wow you know it was it was interesting with people's ideas over there. They wanted a triple, they wanted a quad, they wanted a detached quad and and you know and we'll get into the math uh in a little bit, but you've got to be careful about uphill capacity versus downhill capacity. And realistically, it's a double chair for two reasons. Number one, it is still a remote area. It's 50% Uh, natural and 50% man-made over there. We want it to remain somewhat remote over there and, and be another part of Cannon. You know, we want it to be a very special place that you have to, you know, essentially make an effort to get over there. So you're either skiing across from base area to base area, you can come across from the top, or you can ride over from the Tuckerbrook area and come down to there. We want you to have some sort of sense of arrival. We also want to maintain some of that innocence, and a double chair helps us do that. The other thing, was that the opening itself could only ever be 54 feet wide uh, because we had written into the memorandum of agreement with White Mountain National Forest and New Hampshire Audubon, New Hampshire Fish and Game, et cetera, et cetera, the bird people, the tree people, uh, the, the frog people and the fish people, and whatnot, you know, everybody you can think of. I mean, we, we traveled that area extensively uh, for a couple of years, making sure that everybody was happy with our usage and our planning And the 54-foot guideline was the footprint within which the original double chair had fit. And we made it very clear to ourselves and everyone else that there was to be no new net loss of habitat for the Bicknell thrush species over there. So every time we want to trim a tree, if it's above 2,500 feet elevation... We do talk with New Hampshire Audubon. We talk with Fish and Game. We talk with White Mountain National Forest, and there's usually some some mitigation or there's kind of a land swap and a trade-off and and whatnot that we do. So uh, the double chair itself sort of served two purposes. We wanted it to be a double chair, um, and it had to be a double chair over there.
1: I, I love the context, John, because I think you know, too often these things just get boiled down to raw numbers, and you look at $2 million or whatever it was for a double, and and it's easy to get taken aback by that but but when you go through that and you give the context uh, it's so helpful to understanding and getting the whole story and 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 really seeing how complex these things can be when you start talking about all of the considerations you need to develop anything in the northeast yeah i mean we ended, uh, when we you know i'm going back probably 3 months now
0: um, but we had a meeting between uh myself the New Hampshire Director of Parks and Recreation, the Commissioner of Natural and Cultural Resources, uh, the whole design and build team at Franconia Ski Club, and we actually met with New Hampshire Audubon and uh, and the guys at New Hampshire Fish and Game to talk about window sizes and window treatments and whatnot because we don't want there to be bird strikes over there uh, with too much reflectivity in the windows and whatnot. I mean, we really are always looking out for uh, Mother Nature and the skier at the same time.
1: Well, there's lots to think about. I want to shift gears here and talk about tickets and passes. Uh, Most ski areas in the Northeast have articulated some kind of deferral or refund options, just in case there is another COVID shutdown. Uh, Tell us about your pass assurance plan there at Cannon.
0: Yeah, I mean, essentially, if you change your plans before opening day, you've got refund and credit options at 100%. Uh, And then once the season starts, we go quarterly. Uh, and we do prorated either refund or credit options. You know, there's no penalties, but we do charge a 50% processing fee on any refunds that we do just to cover the 27 steps it
1: takes to pull that off. That's $50, right, not percent? What's that? It's $50, right, not percent? Yeah, sorry, $50, not 50%. <laughs> <shit> the <word. laughs> they want to scare people. And that's a $50
0: <laughs> processing fee for the transaction, so you might wipe out a whole family's worth or defer a family's worth or whatnot, um, but it's the whole transaction, not per person. Yeah, that's a big distinction, not 50 (laughs) percent.
1: So when you announced that plan, John, you made the point in your note to pass holders that you would not be able to offer any sort of make good for the loss of spring skiing this year. We did see some renewal discounts, for example, from Vail, from Powder, from Boyne, from uh, some of the bigger companies. Uh, Take us into your thinking here, though, and your decision ultimately not to provide some sort of pass credit.
0: Yeah, that one was tough. We spent a lot of time on the phone with the folks uh, in Concord about that one. It's got several layers to it, kind of like an onion. Uh, you know, we don't have a gigantic pile of money like the Giants do. And uh, so the idea of an 18% payback never even crossed our minds, frankly. You know, we just don't have it. Uh, we operated for 118 days. We spent nearly $6 million on operations. You know, we put on a hell of a product. We also knew pretty early on that the tram wasn't an option as a summer freebie, which we would love to have offered, um, and that we were going to lose nearly $2 million in revenue by not running the tram during the spring-summer-fall season. You know, So the numbers added up fairly quickly. We were pretty open with people and basically said, look, we just don't have it. We thank you for your loyalty. All we can do is uh, keep churning on. You know, Lastly, we knew we'd be heading into this season with more limited capacity, so we really have to maximize upon the yield, so it was tough to flood the market with, a whole bunch of free tickets, especially when also knowing that we're going to be running with online advanced ticketing. You know, for us, it was a a math problem, and we asked for the goodwill and understanding of our loyalists.
1: And did you get it, or did you get some pushback?
0: Uh, We had one phone call. (laughs) Okay. Literally one phone call with somebody who was a little bit pissed off, and we just tried to walk them through the situation. Anytime people do have the option of pulling out, if you stub your toe, if you get sick, Whatever the case may be, preseason, and then again we just go quarterly with uh, with the prorated stuff. You know, we're trying to be as flexible as humanly possible because we're all human
1: this year. Yeah, yeah. The the reaction, you know, whenever these things are announced, I kind of watch the reaction on social media, and it, I didn't see a lot of negativity or any really about this announcement. People seemed to get it, and they were extremely thankful for your note. And I and I think it seemed like just that you were forthcoming about it, like, look, we just can't afford this. We're a state-owned entity. I, said, I think they got it.
0: I mean, pretty much everything we do at this point, we say, look, if you want us to survive and thrive, this really is the way we need to do it. You know, if you want us to continue uh, kind of cruising down that path, you know, this is the way we need to do it. We we try to be politely blunt, I guess, these days.
1: <laughs> it, there's worse ways to be, that's for sure. Um, so, so the mountain is continuing to evolve. You're part of a couple of past coalitions. I want to talk first about the White Mountain Superpass. It's an alliance between Cannon, Waterville Valley, Bretton Woods, and Cranmore. Unlimited skiing for, I don't know what the price is now. It was around 1000 bucks at its best price. Um, for skiers, this is obviously a great deal. Uh, why does this alliance make sense for Canon?
0: Yeah, it's, it's actually a great regional product. You know, you got four great skiers in close proximity to each other, and that's really the way we push it. Uh, and each one has its own unique character. You know, and then we actually pulled Gunstock on board. Uh, Last year, Bretton Woods had backed out on the college stuff. They really didn't see themselves as much of a college type of ski area. Uh, But we pulled Gunstock in as a great college pass partner, which really gives kids a fantastic night skiing option. Uh, But really it's about proximity and four grade areas, depending upon which product you have, um, that that really do have their own unique vibe. That's what makes it very cool. You know, we wanted to compete with – some of these partner passes that are a little more spread out, you know, proximity is really the key for this one.
1: I'd imagine you'll tell me that this isn't your question to answer, but could we see gun stock on the White Mountain Superpass?
0: Uh, yeah, we've been talking quite a bit with uh, with Tommy Day over there uh, about maybe morphing into that. I mean, it's it's first year, we want to kind of see how it goes, and and uh, I guess we'll find out soon enough. You know, we talk a lot with Chris Elms at, uh, at Bretton Woods, and they're still on board, so You never know. Maybe this becomes a five-partner product, or or maybe it morphs and changes a little bit. And the beauty of it is that uh, we agreed very early on. You know, it started out as the Freedom Pass with Waterville way back when, and then they recruited us in 2007 uh, for the 2007-8 season. Uh, And really the only way we had agreed to jump in, because we don't do scanning here, was that if it could be a sell-it-and-keep-it type of opportunity. So realistically, now you've got four or five different ski areas, aggressively marketing this product so that they sell more of them and it gets more people into the family, so to speak, rather than just saying, okay, we're all going to sell a few and we're going to split the money based upon usage. We really wanted everybody to go for it when it came to uh,
1: trying to recruit that crowd. So it sounds like that's working out pretty well for you. Canon also joined the Indy Pass this year. I know that caused a lot of excitement. That immediately became the marquee mountain on the Indy Pass in the East Coast, in my opinion. Uh, so Indy Pass holders now get two days at Cannon, and Cannon Pass holders can add an Indy Pass on for just $129 and get two days at a bunch of other ski areas throughout the Northeast, including uh, Pat's Peak and Black there in New Hampshire. Take us into your decision to join the Indy Pass.
0: Yeah, we actually, <laughs> I, Doug Fish is very persistent. He started talking to us uh, last, prior to last season um, and it was a little too late for us, and we called off and said, you know, we kind of want to see how this goes. Uh, I had a couple of conversations with uh, Chris Blombach down at Pat's Peak. I think they were number four in the nation on redemptions. Uh, he nice. loved it. We were. I talked with him in uh, February. We Doug Fish came out here again. We skied a couple of times, looked around, really talked about this. And ironically, uh, we sort of did the handshake deal like a week before the whole COVID nineteen thing happened. Uh, and we spent the spring talking with the, a couple of folks in Concord and said, look, he wants to boost his portfolio here in New Hampshire. We consider that to be important. We do consider ourselves to be a hell of an indie. Uh, we're concerned about detracting from our full price products, of course, but we get a decent yield on it, and it gives us some great exposure as a more natural ski area experience. So while we are telling the whole world, listen, we're going to get rid of just about every one of our discounted products and our freebies and this and that and the other thing, we did feel that this one was an important marketing step for us heading into the future. You know, if we can impress some people this year in a very weird year, maybe we do catch
1: on. Yeah, Doug was on the podcast back in May and he talked specifically about Pat's Peak and he said something like 80% or maybe even higher of the folks who skied Pat's Peak on the Indy Pass had never been there before. Right, right and and the GM who had been skeptical was kind of blown away by that and said okay th- this really is as a marketing tool this is a pretty awesome thing. Um now Canon has a lot more name recognition than Pat's Peak. I've continually been shocked. I've been here for 13
0: full years and I've always
1: been shocked by the
0: amazing difference between our summer crowd and our winter crowd. And I would tell you that, you know, the summer crowd comes from around the world for Canon and franconi Notch State Park. You know, and it's probably 85 to 90% I' never been here in the wintertime, don't even realize that oh, wow. this is the ski area. um the other thing is that uh you know we we keep getting involved in these write ups for like undiscovered gem or it's like, oh my God, they found us. We have three new Hampshire uh interstate exits right here at our front door, but they finally found us somehow here at Cannon. <laughs> you
1: know
0: you can't get any more accessible than i ninety
1: three but they have finally managed to find us ironically. Yeah, and you you can't miss it coming south on ninety three either. Uh, you know, it, it's hard for me to get out of my own head sometimes because I'm so in this that that I forget that uh, for a lot of folks it's it's they know about Killington and that's it. Right. Um, so, well, I,
0: you know, and I, realistically that that carries over into real life too. You know, we uh, we've come to the realization that ninety seven percent of Americans have nothing to do with skiing and riding, so we need to change that. But uh, you know, sometimes we do have to get out of our own head and realize that there's a bigger world out there, and we need some of them. To jump into ours.
1: Well, one of the things that people really do come there for is the tram. And I want to talk specifically about that incident in December, 2016, when the tram broke down and you had to evacuate 48 passengers, including seven departing from the summit and 41 coming up the mountain. Take us back to that day, John, how, how did all that go down and how difficult was it to evacuate 48 people from two different tram cars in the middle of winter?
0: Yeah, the tram stoppage was an interesting challenge. You know, it was, uh, It was kind of strange to be reading about it in the media, and it was carried by about 350 media outlets worldwide. And and you're reading stuff like, uh, you know, uh, people stranded and whatnot. And, you know, stranded is like you and I row to an island, and then I go to use the restroom, and you take (laughs) off. You know, so realistically, each tram car had only moved about 50 feet out of the terminal. Uh, You know, we're in full control. It was That was the coldest day to that point of the season. I think it was on... uh, I'm pretty sure it was actually on Valentine's Day or, or right before after. So the decision not to immediately evac was an easy one. It was a super cold day, but inside each tram car, they're not heated, but you do have body heat. And, uh, you know, you're probably 50 to 55 degrees in the more heavily loaded car with 48 or so. And even the other one was probably well above freezing uh, up at the top. You know, so let's face it. You're essentially inside a room. So even on a cold day, there's a lot less exposure to the elements. So we took... A full 90 minutes to make absolutely certain that there was no way to move the tram cars electrically or under backup power. Uh, and realistically, what happened was there was a uh, there was a drive shaft that flash welded shut after 36 years mm. or whatever. Um, and the tolerance on it was one one thousandth of an inch. So when we sent everything away, we shut it down for two weeks. We sent the motorway for rebuild. We sent everything else away for a look see. Uh, and that drive shaft with the bell housing came back with two one thousandths of an inch tolerance. Mm. So, uh, I mean, you're talking about something that was essentially kind of an electromechanical freak of nature, so to speak. Wow! Uh, But at any rate, we took the full 90 minutes, we went through every single system, and then, you know, once we hit the go button, we had everybody back inside within 90 minutes. We had fed them all, warmed them up, gave them some swag, comped their tickets. Uh, We (laughs) were fortunate, again, in that each tram car was only about 50 feet off the, uh, not off the ground, but out of the top and bottom terminals. You're not way up above the terrain. Nobody was freaking out. Um, As far as the training goes, you know, we appoint an incident commander. We have a communications chief, and we run the evac and keep the radio lines clean. You know, there are only, as far as outside communication, there are only two people who ever speak on Canon's behalf, and that's myself and the director of sales and marketing. You know, so we're always in sync on the message. Uh, Things came through fairly clearly that we had performed well and, and kept people warm and made them happy. But, you know, it's certainly an interesting day, uh, and we, we've had no problems since, and we hadn't had any problems before. You know, It was one of those, and it happened uh, right at about 3 o'clock or 3.10 when we were running our daily snow plan, so we literally have the entire ops team in one room already, which made it very smooth. You know, again, what do they say, uh, 10% luck and 90% reaction or vice versa?
1: Yeah. So so that's where you were when you heard all this was happening? The the, the call came? Yeah, we
0: literally got the call on the radio, and then, uh, interestingly, Paula Tracy, who is a a pretty well-known media personality here in New Hampshire, she sent me a text, and she said, that's it, I have to start recording. So I called her and said, what the hell are you talking about? She says, well, we're stuck here. So we had a little back and forth, you know, listen, if you must do it, let's be very careful about this stuff. We don't want to freak everybody out. Uh, We're in good shape. The guys are on the way, blah, 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 and, you know, she made us history. <laughs> Here's one other funny story is that uh Congresswoman Annie Custer, who grew up skiing here at Canada and still visits on occasion, uh, she was on the previous tram car load. Oh wow. And so immediately <laughs> I'm running through my mind like, Oh my god, talk about conspiracy
1: theory if Custer gets on right. the tram. You know, like they're, they're trying to kidnap her or something. Right, like who else is on there, the governor? It's 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 crazy. So so from, from where you were how hard was it for you to get up to the tram, and, and how and how did your guys get up to the top? Uh,
0: we had a couple guys go up in Cats. You know, we, we sort of shielded that area at that point. Mm-hmm. It was, again, right toward the end of the day. So we shut down the cannonball quad so that our guys could kind of sneak up through from the tram side and, and go right up that way. Uh, and, and, you know, that was one or two guys. We lowered them down and then basically drove them, the you know, the 50 vertical feet back up to the, uh, the summit. Once we disconnected... Uh, everything we just backed each car, you know, back to the top and, and down to the bottom, so that by the time all the media outlets showed up, there was nothing to see. I mean, literally, <laughs> literally nothing to look at. And uh, you know, from from the perspective of the folks at the bottom, fifty feet out of the terminal, they were literally right out over flat ground still. Okay. Um, so it was a pretty so how high easy evac. It, it could have been way more difficult, and it wasn't. I mean, from there, it's probably. Oh, I don't know, 20, 23 feet, something like that.
1: Okay. I think for, for a lot of people, standing that high in front of an open door has got to be kind of scary. I, I mean, you're, it's one thing to train your crew, but but how do you deal with that fear? people who were in a tram and are like, hey, I didn't sign up for this. I'm good. I'm just going to stay here until you get this thing fixed. How do you calm them down and get them down safely?
0: Uh, you have them watch the person before them. And they can, you know, once people can see how easily this is going. And, and you know, I think Paula was the first one out the door. And then we actually had a woman uh, who was coming up on foot traffic, you know, just to go up and uh, walk around the summit and then come back down. Uh, she had an 18 month old with her. And so uh, our liftoffs manager happened to be on that tram because she was headed up to send the top guy down, and then she was going to ski down at the end of the day. Uh, so she made some news by giving up her coat and, and helping to comfort that woman. And I think once a lot of people saw the woman with her child safely lowered to the ground, they, they kind of eased up. And by all accounts, it was sort of a party atmosphere on the lower tram. Uh, and the upper tram was one operator and two guys, and there are three kids combined. So I think it was a total of six people. Up there, those guys were a little more chilly. We we definitely bought them uh, some sweatshirts and some socks nice. and and that kind of thing. And uh, unfortunately for them, they actually missed their uh, prepaid reservations over at the Ice Castles down in Lincoln, New Hampshire. And so we paid for oh, that.
1: Nice. So would you lure them down in a harness? How do you how do you actually get them out?
0: Yeah, everyone just you know you've got the uh, the harness that lashes right around your upper body and down you go. Again, fortunately, they hadn't gone very far. They're on flat ground. It's substantially more difficult when you're up on uh, some real terrain. You remember so you, you, in the tram, what makes it even easier is that nobody is wearing their equipment. Right. You know, so that yeah, was a drop down, true. move that out of the way, and then, you know, yeah. let's face it, being lowered and, and standing on your boots is a heck of a lot easier than trying to maneuver with your skis.
1: Aside from the tram, uh, you have quite a few lifts at Canon. Um, most of them are at least a couple decades old. Uh, the current tram was built in 1979. What does your upgrade wish list look like, John?
0: Uh, well, I mean, we essentially do gearbox rebuilds, motor rebuilds, grip rebuilds. We do our annual NDT stuff. Um, you know, I'd stack our maintenance program up against anybody's. You know, we follow along with all manufacturer specs, all the guidance that's coming out and changing uh, continually. Our next major lift project uh, will probably be new tram cars and carrying assemblies plus the electronics. That'll be about three million bucks. Uh, so we're already starting to fund, uh, talk about the funding for that.
1: Do you have a timeline for that? Well,
0: the guys at Doppelmayr Tramway Division are talking about, you know, anywhere from three to five years, and we'd like to be on the early end of that.
1: So you think you can use the towers that are there now?
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. From an engineering you perspective, uh, you know, the, the tram itself was essentially rated for an 80-year lifespan. You know, we're about halfway to that at this point.
1: As far as capacity goes, do you think the new boxes will be about the same size as the current ones?
0: Yeah, I'd be surprised if they change a whole lot. I mean, realistically, you've got, like, uh, you know, J-Peak is 60. We're rated for 70. These are winter. You know, they're 60. We're 70. You know, the giant ones, uh, I've been out at Snowbird. I know theirs is 120, um, and I don't see that. You know, you're going to want to run with essentially that same type of rating. You know, realistically, the tram is not overloaded a whole lot. And I don't mean overloaded by... uh, by capacity or whatnot. But, you know, generally speaking, even on the busiest weekends, the most robust weekends, uh, typically Saturdays, and there are probably three or four of them per year, you might have to wait two or three tram rides before you're able to load. Uh, It's pretty rare. Yeah,
1: I've never never had a bad wait over there.
0: Yeah. Uh, You know, realistically, I probably ride the tram once per day when it's open. I'm more of an mm-hmm. open air guy. I mean I don't really like taking my stuff off and, and doing it. I do it for the experience of doing it and being able to see people right. and chat for a little bit.
1: Right. Uh anywhere on the mountain you don't have a lift that you would like to put one? I'm gonna say no. Yeah,
0: you know, I mean we, we realistically, you know, we're we're pretty we're in pretty good shape when it comes to um you know, where they are, how they're spread out. I mean you really have to be careful with your uphill capacity versus your downhill capacity. Um, you know, when you when you start adding too much, I mean, I spent a year at Aditash, and they've got uh, that really long triple that goes to the summit. Mm-hmm. And even American Skiing Company at the time was talking about, you know, we want to replace that with a detached quad and whatnot. And we started doing the math, and again, it always comes down to the math. And in the same amount of time, we were going to dump 12 times more people onto three trails up at the summit for that. So that quickly kind of went out the window, and here at Cannon, I feel like we've got a really very good uh, consistency when it comes to uphill capacity versus downhill or on-slope capacity. I mean, let's face it, as a skier, personally, I would rather spend more time in the air and more time on the slopes than I would at the base area, but I'm not worried about overcrowding in the base area. I'm a lot more worried about crowding up there on the hill. Um, and so, you know, you, you, it, it's a tough mix because you want to have an empty base area, but you don't want to have a an over-full mountain while you're at it. Uh, and as far as adding stuff, I mean, really, there was some early talk about maybe doing something up and over the saddle to get from Cannon over to Ministersil, but let's face it, that's part of the beauty of doing it, is the ability to hike up and over the saddle. I mean, you know, it's it's realistically only a four- or five-minute hike once you've stopped skiing down through there. Um And that's part of it. I mean, you have to go and hike the saddle. It's part of being at Canada. Yep. Every single person that's here is one of my guests, uh or if they're a, a VIP or media type or whatever, you know that we're going up and over the saddle. You know, it's that one <laughs> little western piece that we have, or, or kind of like, uh, you know, over at Sugarloaf, now where they have Bracket Basin and Burnt Mountain over mm-hmm. there. I did that. Yep. It's so cool to be able to just kind yep. of hike and get away and say, you know what, just follow this down, you're going to hit a brook bed, and you're going to get back. You know, you're not going to get All lost. Right. Just go and have some fun. But you have to be able to do that stuff. Um, but, again, there's no other other lifts up. And, actually, with the midtersole thing, um, we were already trapped uh, in the no new let loss of habitat thing anyway. Um, so, for two reasons, you know, that was a, a no-go for sure.
1: So, it sounds like you're pretty happy with the lift network. Uh, one of the things that you've done since arriving is, is really subtly and over time built out Cannon Glade Network. Uh, are there plans to keep building out this network? And if so, can you give us any hints on which areas of the mountain you may be considering cutting those?
0: Uh, no, there's really no new Glades plan. But, again, we might keep on thinning some areas out. Uh, the last couple of years, that's been challenging just with uh, with staff placement and staff movement. And this year, again, everybody dropped their tools and ran. And then we ran the state park with the most minimal staffing uh, that I've seen since we've been here. So those guys got kind of a late jump. Um, You know, again, I think it's more about thinning and brushing rather than creating new uh, areas. But there's a whole lot of terrain here that's not on the map, as you know, because you've skied here a few times. And, and frankly, we sort of want it that way because most of these areas that, you know, quote-unquote nobody really knows about, you probably don't want a whole lot of people knowing about. Uh, You know, if if we wanted to play the game, listen, I could draw the big yellow line around the entire footprint of the ski area. And say here you go you got 5 or 600 acres just go and play. Now congratulations we're a 600 acre ski area. Uh, but patrol would probably kill me. <laughs> I mean we you know we've talked extensively about doing the whole yellow line around the outer perimeter and then you really just have a couple of areas shaded in pink or with hash marks or whatever that says, you know, not patrolled, don't ski here alone, skull and crossbones or or anything. I mean we've got some serious mm-hmm. stuff out there. And that's what makes it fun for the folks who, they know where they're going, they know what they're doing, they know they'd better be bringing a cell phone, and they know that we're not coming to get them. You know, I mean, we say, look, you're going to go out of bounds. We don't chase, we don't tackle, and we don't rescue. You know, now realistically, of course, we're going to have some involvement in the third one, but, you know, you really kind of want to put the fear into them and say, please make sure that you're qualified to do this. And I am never one to say that somebody doesn't belong on a certain trail they paid their money, have at it, but make sure that you belong out there from a from a, a skill perspective.
1: The, the one area that stands out to me, just because it's kind of huge on the trail map, is is the area off the saddle between barrens and Upper Hardscrabble. Is that uh, how skiable is that in there? If you wanted to glade that out.
0: Well, there are there actually are uh, four or five different lines in there, and it's fantastic. It's super steep, super technical stuff. I mean, it's kind of all like elevator shafts with uh, with trees and bumps in the way, you know. And and enough people are over there that the stuff is getting bumped up. However, I got to tell you that that entire ridge line in between is in what we call kind of preserved status. You know, we that's built into our memorandums of agreement and understanding uh from when we did the Mittersill project. Uh, And we've really put them in the kind of protected status for the Bicknell Thrush, which really means that our guys can go through and they can do some thinning and brushing on the known stuff just from a safety perspective. But, you know, we've kind of – it's not a legal document, but we have sort of agreed with the feds and the bird people, fish people, frog people, et cetera, that uh, we're not going to try to dump a whole lot of people over in there. We really want to protect that habitat. And, and frankly, from a steepness perspective – You don't want a whole ton of people in there. I mean, the the people who are seeking it out are probably the ones who can handle it. And and to date, I've been here 13 years. We've never done a major rescue on that ridgeline.
1: That's great. Well, last question for you here, John. I know you've done a ton of work building up cannon snowmaking. Uh, Tell us about your long-term plans for snowmaking in cannon.
0: Yeah, I mean, in 2007 when I got here, we were pushing about 3,000 gallons per minute at maximum capacity. was really more, more hovering around 28 um, and we kind of gave Matty the keys. You know, he's the smartest guy on the property, um, a math wizard and whatnot. And, and you know, I said
1: – And I'm sorry, who, who is it, who's that?
0: Uh, <laughs> Matt McKinnon uh, is our oh, snowmakes gosh. manager and uh, our construction manager. He's been with us for a long, long time, probably 25 years at this point. Um, but I said, look, let's do this slowly and, and carefully and control. We're not sitting on a ton of money. So what makes the most sense? And, you know, early on, as with everybody, uh, it was really a quest to get more air – uh, and then when it, once everything switched to low energy, now you're really you're starving for more water. You know, so we would move about 3,000 gallons per minute. You know, picture 3,000 basketballs essentially, uh, and that would take 27,000 cubic feet per minute uh, of air. Now we're pushing nearly 5,000 and sometimes a hair over 5,000 gallons per minute, but we're using far less than half of that capacity, maybe 12,000 mm-hmm. cfm at most. Most of the time. Sometimes we're down around 9,000 or even 6,000 if it's a a, uh, a nice, sweet, cold day, you know, 10 degrees, zero degrees, low humidity. So we've essentially, in, in really 10 years or so, the last 10 years, we've added 60% or 66% more water, but we're using less than 40% of that air. Uh, so we're basically mm-hmm. making a hell of a lot more snow at a lot lower cost. And the beauty is that we've shrunk our environmental footprint by at least half. Long-term snowmaking plan, you know, we're we're always going to try to push more water. At this point, uh, in the near future, I don't see the money there to to build out the snowmaking plant itself, but we have the opportunity to replace uh, a couple or a few smaller horsepower pumps, like 400s, maybe with 600s, and that should boost us another couple hundred CFM or more per unit. Uh, So same size hole, same size building, but, you know, we'd hope to bump our water capacity up another 10, 15, 20% over the next maybe five years or so without using a lot more energy.
1: Is the goal 100% snowmaking?
0: Uh, no, yeah. I don't ever see us at 100% snowmaking. I mean, we have trails. I know one of your questions was about uh, DJ's tram line. Yep. Uh, we've got, uh, you know, middle hard scrabble. We've got a few trails that really, you know, it sounds taboo to say, but we don't want them to be snowmaking trails. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the terrain is fun, it, and again, It's pretty rare that Canon is so beefed out with crowding that you're really worried about it, and these are the places that people get to go and explore, and for them that might be the Olympics on that day. Like, I went and skied DJ's tramline, and I'm still alive to talk about it. I mean, realistically, it's actually wide enough where, you know, all three of my kids came down through when they were six, eight, nine-year-olds with their ski groups, and they had a blast because it's wide enough where they basically just traversed the whole thing and there's two little rock sections you pick your way through there and then congratulations you just won the gold medal
1: yeah every time that thing opens up you just see it on social media just people flooding with the ice ski djs today it was open and it might just be a few days a year but those are good days yeah all right john well uh we went a little over i don't want to take up any more of your time but i cannot thank you enough especially with all the work that you're doing to get ken and ready to go for this very unusual winter season so I wish you the best of luck with it this year and, and I'm hoping to get up there and make some turns
0: all right well thanks for having us
1: Stuart that's John DeVivo general manager of Cannon Mountain New Hampshire grab your Indy Pass and get up there this winter if you haven't been you're going to leave wondering what took you so long it is truly a great ski area thank you very much for sharing that with us John and thank you all for listening. Next up, I have a legend of Northeast skiing, Brian Fairbank, chairman of the Fairbank Group, and recent inductee into the National Ski and Snowboard Hall of Fame. Fairbank Group owns Jimmy Keith in Cranmore, and manages Bromley. And Brian has had a really amazing career in the ski industry. Look out for that one very soon. In the meantime, please subscribe to the free Storm Skiing newsletter at skiing.substack.com, and leave the podcast a review on iTunes. Stay well, stay safe, you we're Winchester, I'll talk to you again very soon.
2: The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.